not, but it, it, one of its four legs uh, kind of broke some months back. And so I've been careful not to lean on it while I've been up here preaching because I don't want to just go flying into the front. Um, Don took it a couple weeks ago and brought it back and has reinforced this with like some vault-like strength underneath it. And he told me, he says, it's so strong if you want to, you can get up and belly dance on it. I thought, I don't think it's a good idea. And then I met with the teens Wednesday night, kind of doing one of our kind of vision meetings. One of the things that's become really clear is that it's important to this church to do a better job of helping our teens pass from, um, from their adolescent faith to a lifelong and eternal adult faith. So we wanted to talk to the teens about what they wanted. And one of the things they said is, um, is maybe the sermons could be more interactive. And I thought, well, I don't know. Maybe. Um, but my stool's gone, so I don't have any way to get up. So maybe next week. You know what? Thank goodness. Uh, there's the truth. One of the other things the teen, one of the teens mentioned is, uh, you know, sometimes we want uh, to take a scripture and not just kind of look at like the surface level meaning, but, but really get into the kind of the depths of it, really kind of understand really what's going on in, in underneath the top layers of a scripture. And I was thinking about that this week, and, and I want to do that for two weeks with a difficult text. You know, Jesus says uh, in the wilderness, man does not live on, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And yet as a preacher, there's times that I'll be reading through a passage and I'll think, man, man may not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. But I don't want to preach on that passage. You know, some of those Old Testament passages where you read it and go, what is going on there? I certainly don't want to touch that in front of a crowd. And now that we're streaming on YouTube, that feels even more dangerous. Um, but today I want to do this for a couple of weeks. I want to look at the story of Jephthah. The story of Jephthah, it's from Judges chapter 11. And as we look into this passage on Jephthah and his vow, uh, you need to know before we go in that the Judges makes Jephthah a very complicated figure. He is, on the one hand, a hero of faith. He is someone who is mentioned other times in Scripture as being someone that should be respected as one of Israel's deliverers. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, he's listed alongside Samuel as one of the greatest deliverers that Israel had, that as a judge he was an incredible leader. He shows up in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, which is listing all of the great heroes of faith and their incredible acts, Here's what it says when it comes to the section on Jephthah. In Hebrews 11, it says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. He's in pretty good company. He's listed with some of these heroes that, heroes that have done incredible things with incredible amounts of faith, had their weakness turned into strength, and God worked in them and through them to do what he needed done in their worlds and in their time. And so Jephthah, his, his legacy echoes throughout history and throughout Scripture. And yet, when we look at the story of Jephthah in Judges, Judges leaves it kind of complicated. And as we spend the next two weeks really exploring Jephthah and exploring his vow and exploring his legacy, 
I, I want to just go ahead and tell you that there are some of you in a couple of weeks that are going to, to leave this and think, boy, I think Jephthah is just a tragic character. I think he's a flawed character. I think that he's, he's almost a villain. And there's others of you that are going to leave this story and think, what incredible faith. What, what a hero. I understand how he ended up in the, in the list in Hebrews chapter 11. I understand that. And the incredible thing about Jephthah is, is that the complexity of the story that we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks, I think accurately leaves us saying, is this guy a hero or a villain or a victim or, or all of that? And it's complicated. And so if you go to lunch today and, and the person that you go to lunch with says, do you even know what that sermon was about? Uh, hear that person and then say, I guess we better go back next week. OK, so there you go. That's that's where we're headed today is we're, we're going to park the bus in the middle of confusion and see if we can't eventually get to the place that we're going to get something really meaningful out of this story. So without any further introduction, here is Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 1, as we get into a story that is incredibly complicated and is going to require us to really peel back some layers. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Awesome. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Well, the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. In verse 14 and following for a while, Jephthah sends back messengers to the Ammonite king and he relays to him the history of Israel and the history of Ammon and their battles that have gone back and forth and who had a right to the land. And I want to skip to his conclusion in verse 23. He says, Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Shemash gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. 
Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aror, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I've not wronged you, but you were doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried. Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down. I'm devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you have promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she died and was, she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to, to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. That's a story. It's a story. So I want to ask you, what's the moral of this story? Who in this story is the hero? Who's the villain? Who in this story is the victim? Who is the one who overcomes? What are we as people who eat these stories as words from God? What do we do with these stories? How do we take them and make any sense of what it means for us in our world today? I just want to ask you, just real quickly, here's the interactive part of this morning's sermon. Is, is look at the person who's sitting next to you and tell them what you think the moral of the story is. What are we as people of faith supposed to get from this? Go ahead. Tell the person next to you what you think the moral of the story is.
It occurs to me that this is an incredibly uncomfortable silence for people watching on YouTube, but they have to just deal with it. It's incidentally an incredibly uncomfortable murmuring to me. It's a tricky question, isn't it? How many of you said something that as soon as you said it, you went, ugh, that feels gross? It's a tricky question because what we want the story to have a moral of is don't make dumb promises. Don't do that. The problem is that Judges isn't making that point. There's no condemnation in the text of what Jephthah does. There's ways that the author of Judges could have been critical of that story, and those ways really aren't there. And not only that, Samuel and Hebrews later are going to proclaim him as a great hero of faith. We want the story to be, don't sacrifice your child in exchange for military victories, but that isn't really in the story. And so we're left with this deeply troubling, ethically complicated, moral mess of a story that leaves us all kind of going, ah, what's in this for me? What's in this for us? And as we get into this story, I think there's many things that we can learn, but a lot of it has to do with what came before the story. The passage that John read this morning and, and read so well uh, recognizes that there is a cycle that's going on in the book of Judges. Judges takes place in a season of time after God has brought Israel into the promised land. And, and the promised land, uh, really, that conquest happens in the book of Joshua. And at the end of Joshua, Joshua says to the people, listen, you worship who you're going to worship. But as for me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. And then you turn the page and you open to the book of Judges, and what happens is that over and over again, the people choose anything other than God as what they're going to worship and who they're going to worship. And they start going into all kinds of pagan practices, and they start taking on the, the behaviors of their pagan neighbors, and they act like that's good and that's normal, and they get in trouble over and over again. And so a cycle takes place over and over again in Judges, and it was read in the passage that was read earlier this morning, where, where God says, listen, if you're not faithful to me, that's your choice. But if you choose to worship someone else and not me, I, you're going to be enslaved to that God's people. If you want to worship that God, fine, but that God can't deliver you, and I won't if you're going to worship them and not me. And he gives them what they ask for, which is a God that can't save them. And after a time of being oppressed and enslaved, the people of Israel would cry out to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, Isaac and Jacob, and say, God, just deliver us from this army that has taken over us and this cruel oppressor that is ruling over us. And God would have mercy on them, and he would send for them a judge. And when we think judge, we think you know, Judge Judy or the Supreme Court. That's not what these are. Um, the judges of Israel are really uh, Rambo. Rambo. <laughs> Yeah. They're a little more than Rambo. Uh, they're like warrior kings. They're, they're these kind of regional warrior kings. And there's none of them that are kings over all of Israel like David eventually becomes. But, but they are these warrior kings who have wisdom. And the ones who are really good at their job are also have, have this kind of prophetic priestly job too. To where they come and as warriors they defeat the enemies of Israel. And as rulers they bring goodness and judgment and good judgment to the land. And, and as, as priest and prophet type characters, they also call the people back into a good relationship with God. 
And, and this happens over and over again. And it stays that way, and they're blessed throughout the lifetime of that judge. And then when the judge dies, Israel then immediately goes, who are we worshiping before that guy again? Let's try that again. Let's go back into, into evil practices and, and pagan worship and idolatry. And they would go down that path, and God would say, fine, if that's what you want, I'll let you have it again, but you're not going to like the outcome. You're not going to enjoy the results of this. So the cycle of judges continues until they would cry out to God and he would send to them another deliverer. And so the first thing that you need to know as you go into this Jephthah story is that he comes in the long line of warrior king priests who are doing this job of bringing Israel out of idolatry, destroying their enemies, setting them up with good government for a season, and bringing them into a good relationship with God. Except that the problem is that as you move through the book of Judges, is that the warriors stay pretty good at fighting, but they get less good at teaching the people about God. That they do a pretty good job of, of having power, but not a good job of calling the people to purity. In fact, the judge who most significantly follows Jephthah, there's a few others right after him, but the next one is going to be Samson. And if you read the story of Samson, he does all kinds of fighting. He's like an, an MMA superstar waiting to happen. And he's doing all kinds of fighting and all kinds of battles, and he's a one-man army, but he doesn't really lead anyone. He doesn't really call anyone back to God. He just likes killing God's enemies. And, and so at this point, the warrior part is what's left. And, and the leader and the justice and the prophet and the priest function is falling away. And so as the judges come, even as they bring deliverance, they bring very, very little righteousness back to the people. So the people call out for a strong man who's not really helping them get any closer to God. And Jephthah is part of that end of the story. But as we move into this moment, we have to ask, Jephthah says to his daughter in the moment where he comes home, and he makes this vow to God, and we're going to really kind of plumb the depths of what's going on here. But we need to go back even farther than the book of Judges to understand that cycle into the time when God gave Israel the law. And God gave Israel the rules under which they were going to function if they were going to be his people and he was going to be their God. Because Jephthah says, daughter, I have to keep this vow. There's no way out. There's nothing I can do. I don't know what to do. You came out here when you shouldn't have, and now I have to offer you as an offering to God. And just as an aside briefly, there's, there's some people that read this text and that their understanding of, of the dedication of the daughter and the devotion of the daughter is not that she's actually offered as a burnt offering, that instead what happens is that like, like Hannah dedicates Samuel to the temple, uh, that he will throughout his life remain dedicated to God and nothing else, that perhaps there's an ending to the story where Jephthah dedicates his daughter to serving in the Lord, uh, Lord's temple in some way or serving the Lord in some way that requires celibacy and that she, she goes that way. And, and I, I just acknowledge that that is a possibility that exists in this story. But for me, it doesn't fit the simplest, most straightforward reading of the text. We want that because the most straightforward reading of the text that he sacrifices his daughter as an offering to God is so deeply troubling that we want to find the easier off-ramp. 
but that is there. And so if, if you're someone that's interested in those kinds of things, just know that that possibility exists. Um, it's not what I think happened. And so when Jephthah comes home and realizes that what must be done to his daughter is that she is going to be offered on a sacrifice, which is my understanding of the text. It's the most straightforward reading and the one that best fits the language. He says, there's no way out of this. Because in Judges, there's times over and over again where a generation was raised up that knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel, and they forgot his commands, and they worshiped other gods. So the problem is that nobody knows the law, and no one knows God's word. And they didn't know the instructions like Exodus 20 and verse 13, which we all know from the time that we're children, where God says, thou shalt not murder. The idea that, that Jephthah would, would offer to kill something that comes out of his house, which is most likely going to be some form of, of, of a sacrifice that is also at the same time the taking of a life, is very complicated when it comes to the Ten Commandments, which say, thou shalt not murder. You shouldn't kill another human or take another life. God doesn't desire that. But even more specifically than the instruction to not take a life uh, that is an innocent life, are a couple of instructions in the book of Leviticus. The first one is in Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 4, where there is a law that's job is to say, if you make an oath that is dumb, repent of your oath and get out of it. That if you make a promise to God or anyone else, and it was a bad oath, and you realize the foolishness of what you've promised, here's how you repent of that bad oath and get out of that oath and pay a price for being a bad oath maker. Jephthah had at his disposal this get-out-of-jail-free card, but nobody knew the law. God's word had been abandoned by his people. There's even a series of commands in Leviticus chapter 27. It's eight verses long. It's on the screen. I'm not going to read it. But here's what you need to know is that what it basically says is if you make an oath that pledges the life of another as part of your oath, the life has to be taken because of an oath you gave. Uh, listen, we all get that you shouldn't do that. So here's the prices for each value of life. And everyone had different values ascribed to them based on their economic value, not their actual intrinsic value. All people are made uh, in the image of God and have equal value under God. But in terms of Israel's understanding of the economic value of people, this is how it sorts it out because it's a lawsuit type system. It says, listen, if you make an oath and you pledge the life of someone, uh, here's how you get out of that oath. You pay a price to, in place of the life because God does not want you to sacrifice a human. You just pay a pledge and you get out of that. It's a very, very specific instruction on how to deal with exactly what Jephthah is going through in this moment where he has pledged that his daughter will be offered as a sacrifice. Certainly there's other commandments that talk about keeping promises and, and let your word be uh, dependable and reliable and don't go back on your word. But, but if just someone in Gilead if just Jephthah had known God's word, there were ways out of this that didn't involve the sacrifice of his daughter. But they didn't know. You see, we live in a world today where people know less and less about God's word. 
where people know less and less and care less and less about the instructions God gives us. And there's times when we don't know or we don't care about what God tells us that what we're going to end up doing is having good people doing wrong things in God's name. Suddenly, this story that's really complicated starts to feel a little bit like home in a way that should be pretty frightening to us. That people in the name of God will do wrong things because they don't know what God's word says. One other thing in this story I want to look at today, we're saving the meaty stuff for next week, just so you know. The meaty stuff about um, who, is, uh, who is Jephthah's father, Gilead? Who is his mother, the prostitute? Who are these brothers who chase him off and welcome him back? We're going to get into some of the family dynamics. We're going to get into the culture and the society and the sense of justice that has broken everything. We're going to look at Jephthah's career goals prior to being the leader. We're going to get into kind of some of the, that side of things next week. But the other thing that we need to look at today is when we look at Jephthah as a negotiator, one of the things that's really interesting through this chapter is, is evaluating whether or not he's a very good negotiator or a very bad negotiator. And the camps that, that study Jephthah and this chapter of Judges are really split on this argument. They're very divided. Uh, on the one hand, what we do know is that Jephthah goes to the land of Tob and he gains this group of scoundrels that come around him. Um, scoundrels is kind of a cleaner way for describing criminal mercenaries, but that's who they are. They're scoundrels. Um, and they're for hire. Um, and, and he's out here doing his thing with them. And the, the brothers who are now the elders in the village, they come to him and they say, listen, we need you to come fight for us. And if you actually go back a few verses to the end of chapter 10, they say, whoever will be our commander will be our leader. Well, then they go to Jephthah and they say, hey, would you be willing to be our commander? They don't say anything about being the leader. He says, if I'm your commander through this battle, who's to say that you won't then make me your leader? And they kind of go, no, no, no. If you are a commander through the battle, we'll make you the leader. And then what actually happens is that they go and make him the leader before the battle. Jephthah is able, through this series of conversations with those who had previously rejected him and exiled him, to go from, hey, if you'll just lead this battle, uh, you can, we would be grateful, to being in charge already. He's the ruler over Gilead for his willingness to serve, and he kind of negotiates this promotion through the process. And then he immediately, once he's promoted, starts negotiating with the ruler of the Ammonites. And he sends them this long description of the history in the past. And it's interesting to me that he knows so much about Israel's battle history, but not much about the history of God's law. One of them has apparently been more important in his upbringing and instruction than the other. So Jephthah uh, gives him all the history. And the question is, what is Jephthah's objective in the sending of this letter? Because he starts off as if it's a letter saying, listen, we have a rightful claim to this land, so you just forfeit your claim and we'll just have peace. Except by the end of the letter, he basically ends it in a not too subtle declaration of war. In the same letter, he doesn't even wait for a response. And you have to think, boy, if he's trying to get peace, he's not doing a very good job. And so this is where the two camps depart. One group says, uh, if he's trying to negotiate peace, he's doing so in a way that's definitely going to lead to war. The other group says, do you know what, what Jephthah stands to gain the most? Is if they go to war. 
is where he personally gains the most influence and power and leadership over the people in Gilead. And it might be that he's negotiating exactly what he wants because before he even gets a response about the letter, he's off to battle. And as he's going to battle, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. And he makes a vow as he's going into the battle in the Spirit of the Lord. And he says, God, if you will simply hand my enemies over, turn them over to me. I will offer you as a whole burnt offering whatever it is that walks out of my front door when I get home. That negotiation is pretty open-ended. And the thing that you need to know is that for a military ruler in that time, that it would be expected of him to make some kind of a pledge to his deity on behalf of his troops. To say, listen, when, when we go into battle, to the deity that I worship the most, if you will give me victory, I will give you fill in the blank. But Jephthah, in his negotiating, does something interesting. He says to God, God, I will give you whatever you want. We look at the story and we think he's taking a wild risk and a great chance. Anything or anyone could walk out of that door and he would have to argue it. Jephthah doesn't think he's leaving it up to chance. Jephthah thinks he's telling God, God, you choose what you want to be my offering in exchange for this battle. And I will withhold nothing from you. If that's what walks out of my door, I will give it to you. And if you understand Jephthah's negotiation here to be a carte blanche, open-ended, I will give you whatever you bring out of my door promise to God, then God's role becomes complicated in the story. Because the Spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah right before he makes the vow. And it says that God then delivers the Ammonites into Jephthah's hand so that they have a great victory. And he goes and he conquers 20 more villages and towns. And it's as if God says, I accept your offering and in return give you the victory. And then there's the, the moment that, that Jephthah goes home to his daughter and, and she says, do whatever God has told you to do. And, and, and he's going to offer her. And we've already got a story in Israel's history where there's this story where a father is prepared to offer his, only, uh, his son Isaac, not his only son, but his son that is the son of the promise on an altar. And an angel comes down and stops his hand in the moment right before it happens. But this story doesn't include any interrupting angels. And we feel so uncomfortable to have a ruler offering his child, his only child, on behalf of a people who had previously rejected him. Which is also a little complicated, isn't it? Since every Sunday morning we come to church to worship a ruler who offered as a sacrifice his only child to save and deliver those who had previously rejected him. The story just keeps having layers after layers, and it doesn't resolve neatly, and it doesn't resolve easily. And it's hard to figure out if Jephthah is a person of great savvy and of great faith and of great commitment, or if he's someone who's making foolish oaths and who doesn't know God's law and who's getting himself into trouble and he can't get out of it, and if his daughter pays the price because he just can't keep his mouth shut. Which one is it? Judges doesn't let us off the hook that easily. It doesn't resolve this complexity. What it does is it leaves us feeling awful in the midst of greatness. 
It leaves us feeling encouraged in the midst of loss and tragedy and suffering. And what Judges is doing is trying to say, if a generation continues to come up that knows neither God nor what he has done, and that doesn't know the word of God and the commands of God, or if they know it and they don't care, then even your heroes will look like villains. And even the villains will sometimes be turned to as heroes because the world's turned upside down. And if you allow that to become how the people of God live, then don't expect great judges who call you to both righteousness and power. You're going to have to settle for one or the other. Calling judges is letting you know the brokenness that comes from an abandonment of a commitment to God and his word. The promise that's coming is that a good king will arrive. In the Old Testament, that king that's coming is King David. King David's going to sit on the throne and finally become the man after God's own heart who will rule with both righteousness and repentance and power. David's going to be the one that Israel will look to for generations as the one whose seat God promised will have a king that will sit on it forever, which really leads us to anticipate the great king, King Jesus the one who would give his life on a cross, not unlike Jephthah's daughter, willing to be an only child, sacrificed for her father's victory so that those who had previously rejected her father might be delivered. It's an incredibly complicated story, but one that calls us to God that calls us to his word and anticipates in a really poetic way the incredible sacrifice that Jesus would eventually make for the sake of God and the sake of others. And if you're not one of those who have ever received the blessing that comes from receiving the gift of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Uh, this morning, in a, in a moment, we're going to have an invitation song. If you need to respond to the gospel, come and do that. But also, uh, if this story has left you troubled, then you're reading it right. And we're going to get into it a little bit more next week as we continue to figure out what it is that God has to offer us from the mess that is humanity, the mess that is the world, the mess that is happening in Judges, and the mess that we're living in today. If we can't be the people that are committed to God and His Word. Let's have an invitation song. My stubborn will at last has.